0: You cannot have a functioning democracy where representatives are choosing which way to vote on a given issue out of fear for their lives. You cannot have a functioning election where election officials are carrying out their jobs under fear of violence.
1: Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the Supreme Court and the rule of law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I covered those things for Slate. We are finding ourselves right now in a really troubling moment for democracy, both home and abroad. The news from the Middle East is devastating, and the Speaker's fight in the House of Representatives certainly suggests that democracy as we understand it is failing utterly to meet the moment. So it seemed like a good time for Amicus to turn back to one of the godfathers of democracy preservation— my good friend Ian Basson. Ian has been stopping by the show in these moments of wobbling democracy, often to point our listeners to what is holding and what is teetering, and maybe most importantly, what we should be focusing our attention on and what we should be doing. Ian is co-founder and executive director of Protect Democracy. He previously served as associate White House counsel, Where in addition to counseling the president and senior White House staff on administrative and constitutional law, his responsibilities included ensuring that White House and executive branch officials complied with the laws, rules and norms that protect the fundamentally democratic nature of our government. Ian's writing on democracy and authoritarianism and American law has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Slate, this very magazine, the Los Angeles Times, and the Atlantic, among other places. And at the beginning of this month, Ian was announced as a recipient of a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship, better known to us as the Genius Grant. So, Ian, congratulations on being a genius. We all knew it all along. Welcome back to the show.
0: Thank you, Dolly. It's always great to be on here with you.
1: And I'm not ever sure that every single person listening to our podcast with you understands what you are doing at Protect Democracy. Although, to be honest, I often tell people I meet at cocktail parties that they should be watching what you're doing. Would you mind just taking a moment and explain what the mandate is, what the focus is, and the sorts of things that you've been working on uh, since you co-founded this project with Justin Florence?
0: (sighs) Yeah, well, I want to rewind a little bit to tell that story to what I was doing back in 2009, 2010, 2011, when I had what we might today refer to as the democracy portfolio in the White House Counsel's Office, although we didn't call it the democracy portfolio at the time. We called it government reform because we thought the task before us was simply improving our system of government. It's only in hindsight that we realize the task actually was saving it. And what that task included, relevantly to what I'm doing now, was making sure that people in the White House and in the executive branch, as you noted earlier, follow the rules. But when you do that job, you learn very quickly that those rules are often not legally binding. I had three binders in my office that I inherited from a lawyer who had done my job in a prior administration that contained memos going back to the Eisenhower era that White House chiefs of staff and counsel had sent out to executive branch officials explaining what they could do and what they were not allowed to do in the performance of their duties. And if people in the White House had questions about what they could and couldn't do, I'd consult the binders. And if the binders didn't have an answer, I'd call the lawyer who did it for President Bush. And if he couldn't answer, we'd call the lawyer who did it for President Clinton. It didn't matter whether you were serving in a Democratic or Republican administration. Those rules were the same. And so immediately after... The 2016 election, the concern that began to grow among me and my former colleagues in the White House Counsel's office was, what would happen if you had a president who chose not to follow those rules? What would happen if you had a leader who had almost fomented a political movement organized in opposition to them? And... We didn't really need to wonder about that for long, because if you looked around the world, you saw leaders and movements that have been doing that in the 21st century, that have been undermining democratic government with more authoritarian forms of government. And so we decided initially to do a very modest thing, which was to try to share publicly what we'd learned from those binders and in doing the job that I did for President Obama as our small contribution to trying to prevent American democracy from declining into a more authoritarian form of government. But as the threat has grown, what we have had to do has grown as well. And so what we have built at Protect Democracy is a cross-ideological organization of progressives, moderates, and conservatives who all disagree about politics and policy, but agree on the foundational Elements that make us a democracy and the imperative of protecting them. And we use every tool at, our, at, a, at the citizens' disposal to do that. Litigation, legislation, strategic communications, research, analysis, technology, to animate and strengthen our institutions
1: and and i think uh, my producer often describes it this way ian you're the guys who are walking and chewing gum i mean you're doing you know sort of the big thing and the small thing at the same time And as a consequence, I often think that what you do at Protect Democracy is both sprawling and huge, but also really pointillist and specific. You know, this is not a theoretical apparatus. You're filing lawsuits, you're building coalitions. And I think as a consequence, sometimes it's hard to understand that you're doing both at the same time. But I wonder if we can zoom in. To something very specific, and then we'll zoom back to the sprawling piece, and that is we're taping on Thursday and the news just dropped that Sidney Powell, who with Rudy Giuliani was one of Trump's most prominent surrogates in spreading totally baseless conspiracy theories in the 2020 election and who Trump tried to make his emergency special counsel in the last weeks of his presidency. She just agreed to a plea deal in the Georgia election interference case. She's going to truthfully testify against the other defendants and she's going to turn over documents. So she potentially, I think, becomes a star witness against Trump in the federal trial that's coming up in March. And I I find myself wondering, based on what we know from the January 6th report, based on what you know, Trump loyalists turning against him. Is this a game changer, having the inner, inner, inner circle flipping on him? Or is this a game changer only because we don't understand what game is being played?
0: Well, the analogy that immediately comes to mind for me And I wouldn't be surprised if it comes to mind for Donald Trump as well, is back in the 1980s and 90s in New York City. So I grew up in New York City in the 1980s, and the two people who were on the cover of the tabloid newspapers all the time were John Gotti the infamous mob boss who ran the Gambino crime family, and Donald Trump, uh, a rising real estate mogul and socialite who made a point of always being in the news and in the tabloids. And the story of John Gotti in the 1980s and 90s was that after ascending to the top of the New York mafia, he was indicted and prosecuted multiple times for murder, racketeering, you name it, And acquitted multiple times. And the reason he was acquitted often was because he engaged in witness intimidation. Um, So much so that eventually the judges who were overseeing his trials ordered that the jury be kept anonymous in order to protect them. Well, doesn't this sound a little bit familiar? because Donald Trump watched all of that happen in the 1980s. He was probably looking at the tabloids to see his own name, so he couldn't avoid seeing John Gotti's and following that, and following exactly how Gotti got the name Teflon Don. Uh, And it was through using witness intimidation to get out of very obvious criminal activity responsibility. So what ultimately brought down John Gotti was that one of John Gotti's top deputies, Sammy the Bull Gravano, eventually flipped and turned state's evidence. And it was when Sammy the Bull Gravano testified against Gotti that Gotti was finally convicted of racketeering and sentenced to life in prison where he spent the rest of his days until he passed away from cancer behind bars. So I think of that story when we read the news of Sidney Powell taking a plea deal and agreeing to testify fully against her co-defendants, because one of her co-defendants, obviously, is Donald Trump. And I think the most important potential development of this news is that Sidney Powell was in the Oval Office for the infamous meeting on December 18th of 2020, where ostensibly, at least as has been reported the sort of core of some of the conspiracies to try to stop the peaceful transfer of power were presented to Donald Trump. And so, yes, I think this is enormous news that someone who was Trump's top lieutenant in his efforts to overturn the election, who had access to Trump personally, and will be able to testify what he knew, and when he knew it, and what he was telling people to do at the time has now agreed to testify against him in, I should note, a racketeering case, which is ultimately what brought down John Gotti.
1: Do we get to call her Sidney the Kraken Powell? Can we Can we make that a thing, do you think, if anyone can? <laughs> I,
0: think, I think she claimed that title herself, <laughs> just as uh, Sammy Gravano probably did once upon a time.
1: One of the things that you've been doing at Protect Democracy is just chipping away, chipping away at fighting disinformation um, and frequently doing it through the courts. And that persistent, you know, going after uh, the lies and the liars and the conspiracy theories has has really logged some big wins for you but i'm in a moment right now and i need you to talk me down where it just feels like disinformation is just careening around the world on rocket fuel and court sanctions and you know we've got a gag order against Donald Trump suddenly It feels like that is moving around the world like in the Flintstones car, you know, on those like stone wheels. And I I wonder if you can talk us through how it is that these victories in court that are, to be sure, significant wins uh, for truth and for truthfulness manage in your view to stay ahead of how fast the lies can spread. Well, let's
0: start by zooming out a bit and looking back at history over a much longer arc than just the 1980s or 1990s, I'm going to go back centuries to the invention of the printing press. Every time there is a new form of media that is produced, uh, it is disruptive to the way that human beings and societies communicate. The rapid ability to manufacture the printed word and spread it quickly, uh, led to an enormous amount of conflict and violence after the printing press was invented and pamphlets could sort of rile people up and turn one religion against another. And it took time for society to figure out how to metabolize that new form of communication and not let it destroy civilization. And similar things happened at the advent of radio or television in... Um, You had people like Adolf Hitler who figured out how to use radio to their advantage, and then you had people like Winston Churchill and Franklin Delano Roosevelt who then figured out how to use radio. And then eventually the regulatory apparatus of democratic governments figured out how to put in place rules to try to uh, protect public discourse. And we're in another one of those moments where we still have not, as a society, figured out how to metabolize these new forms of communication, the internet, social media, in a way that is more productive for society and not... Uh, destructive for society. And so we're in that period. And so you're absolutely right. We are living through a time when the rampant spread of mis and disinformation are wreaking all sorts of havoc and leading to all sorts of horrific acts and violence. But we're also beginning to learn how to metabolize it and how to institute regimes that will Bring us back to an equilibrium and hopefully a place where these tools can be advantageous for society. And so we are beginning to experiment with how to do that. One way that we have been trying to impose the rule of law on what has been the Wild West of new media is simply by using legal tools that have long existed but were, sim- but were not being applied um, as much as they need to be applied. So traditional media outlets, the New York Times, CNN, Slate, they operate in a legal regime where if you say something that is... False, recklessly false or maliciously false against somebody else and you injure them in doing so, you're potentially liable under longstanding libel and defamation law. And I'm sure, Dahlia, you know that if you were to do something on this program, uh, your the lawyers at Slate would intervene and say, actually, we cannot do that because we will expose ourselves to liability. And most traditional media outlets operate and have systems for operating within that legal regime. But what has happened in recent years is with the proliferation of New forms of communication and speakers who don't operate within a traditional media company they have essentially been like the pioneers moving into the Wild West, where they're out there on their own without the sheriff and without the law necessarily applying. And they're holding up trains and you know committing armed robbery uh, out on the plains because the legal regime that applies back East hasn't been applying out West. And so what we're trying to do is just apply the legal regime that exists. We looked at uh, the proliferation of disinformation and in particular injurious dif- disinformation over the last couple of years and saw that there were a couple of instances where lawsuits were remarkably effective at addressing disinformation. So two that are three, I suppose, that are, that are relatively well known. The Dominion voting systems case against Fox News which produced a $787 million settlement from Fox, uh, was remarkably effective. Uh, The lawsuits brought by the families of Sandy Hook survivors against Alex Jones were remarkably effective. And they're also perhaps lesser known was a conspiracy theory that Seth Rich, uh, a staff member on the Democratic National Committee back in 2016 who was tragically mugged and murdered on the streets of D.C., he became the victim of a conspiracy theory in which the false allegation was that he was actually the person who had hacked the DNC and was responsible for the dissemination of internal documents, not the Russians and WikiLeaks had nothing to do with it, et etc. And there, too... Um, lawyer named Mike Gottlieb and his team represented the rich family in a, in a defamation lawsuit that was very, very successful at ultimately shutting down those conspiracy theories and generating some measure of justice, although certainly not enough um, for the rich family. And we looked at those and said, well, there's so much disinformation out there. Why have there only been three of these cases? And the answer we concluded was that one of the reasons was that in each of those cases, the defendant potentially had money to pay out fox news was was the defendant uh, in in most of them and fox has deep pockets And plaintiffs' lawyers go after defendants with deep pockets because they can pay out a judgment award. But for so many of the super spreaders of disinformation, they are potentially judgment proof in that they don't have giant corporate bank accounts to pay out a judgment. And so the incentive in the legal world to go after those defendants was lower. Uh, And so what we decided to do was create a essentially a pro bono plaintiff's bar at Protect Democracy that would, in a nonprofit setting, bring defamation cases when there were conspiracy theories that falsely made allegations against people and caused them grave injuries. And so we've done that. One of them is probably somewhat known because it's been in the news a lot, which is we represent Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, the two incredibly brave election workers in Georgia who stepped up in the middle of a pandemic um, and helped their Georgians vote by being election officials, and then were falsely accused of corrupting that election by Donald Trump and his allies. And we represent them in multiple cases against the people who have falsely defamed them. We represent a number of other people in similar cases as well. Uh, Steve Richer, who is the Republican recorder in Maricopa County, Arizona, who has also been falsely accused of corrupting the elections that he has overseen. We represent him in a case against Carrie Lake and some of her affiliated political entities, uh, alleging that they defamed Mr. Richer. We represent uh, an individual who was falsely accused in the materials around the conspiracy film two thousand. And mules of being a quote unquote ballot mule uh, of taking ballots illegally and stuffing them into a ballot box when in fact in truth he was lawfully putting in the ballot box his own ballot and the ballots of his immediate family which he was allowed to do under Georgia law um, and we represent him in a case against the people who we allege defamed him and we have several other cases like this as well and what we're seeing as the aggregate result of these cases is. That those people out there in the world who had been operating out in the Wild West are starting to realize that actually there is a legal regime that applies, and if they don't follow the protocols that you at Slate follow and that traditional media follow to make sure that they're not recklessly and falsely accusing people of defamatory things, that they're going to be held liable. And I think we're starting to see a change in behavior. If you just compare the 2022 election to the 2020 election, there was rampant disinformation after the 2020 election that was picked up in media all over the country. After 2022, far, far less. Uh, And we've had some of the defendants in our cases actually say things like, Fox News won't cover my material because their lawyers are afraid of getting sued. And that's absolutely correct. That is a, a sign that this sort of of applying the law as it exists is working as the deterrent it is supposed to be.
1: Time for a short break to hear from our sponsors.
0: This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping so he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand and he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done which is music to his ears call clickgranger.com or just stop by granger for the ones who get it done
1: let's return to my conversation with Ian Basson, co-founder of Protect Democracy you know, I was thinking about that Ruby Freeman, Shea Moss litigation and thinking about the fact that, we, again, we're always fighting the last war, you know, both in the media and I think in terms of democracy. And so we have this sense that, oh, you know, that was an attack on election workers, you know, intimidation, harassment in their homes, you know. Horrific campaign of abuse, but like it was a one off. And I think your point is always it's not a one off. It's a predictor of what could happen to other uh, election workers in upcoming elections. And it's also a campaign to allow folks to bring guns uh, to election places. It's a campaign to intimidate election workers out of doing their jobs. I want you to just help our listeners understand that in some sense, that was a canary in a coal mine, and why it is that this chilling you're trying to do to protect other election workers has to scale around the country.
0: Well, specifically with respect to election workers, the intimidation that people like our clients faced is causing a mass exodus of election workers to leave their jobs because what happened to our clients was horrific. They were falsely accused of stealing the election by Donald Trump and his allies. And as a result, they were the recipients of harassment and racist threats and death threats and people threatening and even coming to their home. Eventually, they had to leave their homes on the advice of the FBI for their own safety. That type of activity is not just happening in that one isolated instance. That's happening with increasing frequency around the country, not just with respect to election officials, which is causing its own acute problem of, we're going to have an enormous amount of new election officials this time, and we've lost an enormous amount of institutional memory in that process. But it's happening throughout our uh, our civil society, our politics. Uh, Earlier this week, Uh, Republican Representative Miller Meeks put out a statement that after she had originally cast a vote for Jim Jordan to be Speaker and then changed her vote to vote for someone else to be Speaker, she had received death threats uh, and harassing calls and and emails. That is not a sustainable way for democracy to function. In McKay Coppin's biography of Mitt Romney that came out earlier this year— Romney talks about the fact that during the Trump impeachment, the second Trump impeachment deliberations, he spoke to members of Congress who were personally inclined to vote to either impeach Donald Trump in the House or uh, convict him in the Senate, but ultimately chose not to do so because they were afraid that if they did so, they would potentially be endangering the physical safety and lives of their family members. You cannot have a functioning democracy where Representatives are choosing which way to vote on a given issue out of fear for their lives. You cannot have a functioning election where election officials are carrying out their jobs under fear of violence. And this is a dynamic that, frankly, Donald Trump has introduced into our politics and One of the myriad ways that we need to put this nightmare genie back in the bottle is through making sure that the rule of law is applied, is enforced, and creates the deterrent against people engaging in this behavior. And I am optimistic that we can do that. And that's not just wishful thinking. It's based on evidence. If you look at the consequences that have been applied to the rioters on January 6th, those people who stormed the Capitol, broke windows, ransacked the seat of our government, they have systematically been prosecuted. And many of them are doing serious time. And that has sent a very clear signal that I think people out in the country are heeding. If you look at every time since then, that Donald Trump has tried to call on his followers to come to the New York courthouse or the Atlanta courthouse where he was being arraigned, you don't see the same violent mobs coming to those courthouses as you saw come to the Capitol on January 6th. And I think one of the reasons for that is people saw that when you go and heed Trump's call to disrupt uh, a governmental proceeding, you're going to get prosecuted if you do that. You can peacefully protest, you want to come and peacefully protest, fine. But if you come and try to disrupt a government proceeding violently, you're going to get prosecuted. And so we have a a serious problem in this country with a rise of political violence. I think it is probably going to get worse before it gets better, but we do have tools to try to contain it. And it's, it's critically important that we make sure those tools are applied right now.
1: So I want to, lash this next question to your last answer, which is, you know, when we think about how we're always fighting the last war, I think that when we think about free and fair elections, an awful lot of people are still hung up on voter ID, right? And, you know, felon disenfranchisement. And I think you and I both think that's that those are quaint Methods of suppressing democracy compared to, uh, you know, other existential uh, attempts that we've seen happen chiefly around the 2020 election. And I want to quote from your MacArthur Fellowship page here quote, in 2019, uh, Basson and his colleagues assembled the National Task Force on Election Crises to prevent and mitigate a range of election crisis scenarios. After two years of advocacy and technical refinements, the majority of the task force recommendations were enacted into law in December of 2022. And I raise this both to let you wax poetic, if you will, about what those of us who still are obsessing about (laughs) voter ID and uh you know closing down polling places which by the way are really bad but there's other stuff that is arguably even scarier that you have managed I think to secure And to bolt down. Uh, So I wonder if you can walk us through some of the recommendations you all made. What was the crisis planning? Those of us who are still thinking about Bush v. Gore and hanging chads, bring us into 2022 uh, and what it is that you did, what it is you were afraid of.
0: Well, this is also, I think, and maybe this is your intention, a good opportunity in the midst of an awful lot of depressing news and darkness that we are currently living through to also take a moment to say, hey, there are some things that we as a democracy movement are doing well and we are succeeding on. And I think that's really important to keep in mind. Um, Authoritarians thrive on hopelessness, and we should not be hopeless. We should have a lot of hope and a lot of optimism, which I do. And part of it is derived from the fact that we as a democracy movement have been quite successful in recent years at closing off some of the more frightening avenues that could undermine future elections. So you make reference to the passage uh, at the end of 2022 of the Electoral Count Reform Act. This was legislation that was necessary to update a very old law from the 19th century called the Electoral Count Act, which was enacted in response to the Hayes-Tilden election of 1876, which was an incredibly close election, like elections that we've had recently, and in which there was real controversy about which electoral college electors and ballots should actually count. Um, and the tragedy of that election is that ultimately the country made a devil's bargain where uh, Hayes was agreed to. Uh, by the parties to be elected as the president in exchange for federal troops being pulled out of the South and ending Reconstruction. And so the peace of the presidential election was essentially bought on the backs of African Americans of the South, who were then subjected to decades of authoritarianism. And one of the things that grew out of that was the Electoral Count Act, which was intended to be a law that would inform Congress how to deal with controversies in the future over which electoral college ballots should count and which Should not. Unfortunately, it was horribly drafted. Uh, If you read it, uh, good luck making any sense of that uh, 19th century law. And Donald Trump's attorneys saw that as well. And they used the vagueness of that law as their primary means of trying to overturn the election in 2020. What was Congress doing on January 6, 2021? Congress was in session following the instructions laid out in the Electoral Count Act for how to deal with controversies over what electoral college ballots should count and what the vice president's role was or was not. And so very early on, The National Task Force on Election Crises, back before the 2020 election, identified the Electoral Count Act as a real vulnerability and began both doing two things. One, in advance of 2020, trying to ground conventional wisdom in a interpretation of what it did mean and what it didn't mean, that the National Task Force on Election Crises is a cross-ideological body that runs uh, from the left to the right. It has some of the, the nation's leading uh, civil rights advocates on it, like Jenny Nelson at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. It has former Republican National Committee Chairman on it. It has the former Homeland Security Secretary under George W. Bush, Michael Chertoff, on it. And the idea was to get all of these people who often have very different views on issues to align and agree in advance on how certain potential crises might play out and what the protocol should be to get the country back to safer ground as a a conventional wisdom that this group of ideological opponents could agree on in advance and help guide the nation. And, And they did that in advance of 2020 with how the electoral count act properly should be interpreted but also with how it should ultimately be reformed and so working with some wonderful partner organizations issue 1 the campaign legal center and two attorneys who had served under both democratic and republican presidents bob bauer and jack goldsmith we worked with a bipartisan group in the senate to reform the Electoral Count Act, enact an updated version that really closes off a lot of the vulnerabilities in the old one that was passed uh, in December 2022, signed into law by President Biden. And so the potential for the ECA to be an avenue for subverting a future election has been greatly diminished. Another big win was some of Trump's supporters in 2020 pushed a radical theory on the Supreme Court known as the Independent State Legislature Theory, which argued that under the Constitution, state legislatures had exclusive and plenary authority to do essentially whatever they wanted when it came to federal elections, um, which was a, a radical theory not rooted in any actual history. And we and a coalition of groups, the Brennan Center, importantly, and the merits parties in those cases, ably represented in court, by Jenner and Bloch, Mark Elias, Neil Katyal, and and many others, uh, successfully persuaded the Supreme Court that indeed that theory was just that, a bunk theory. And the Supreme Court rejected that theory. That was another important place where a vulnerability in the 2024 election was closed off. And then the other really, really important victory for protecting the integrity of 2024 was what the voters did in 2022, which is they rejected en masse a bunch of Trump-allied Stop the Steal election deniers who were running for secretary of state offices to oversee the 2024 election. And every single one of those candidates who was a 2020 election denier, who was running to administer the 2024 election, was defeated in key states where they were going to be the top election official in the state. So if you look across those multiple things, the work that we've done to try to check the spread of disinformation, defamatory disinformation, the closing of the gaps on the Electoral Count Act, the rejection of the independent state legislature theory, the defeat of election deniers running to oversee the election, a lot of the number one vulnerabilities that look like we're going to be real dangers going into 2024 have been addressed. The biggest danger right now Going into 2024, I think is less about an election being subverted, although there are still dangers there. We are not out of the woods, but that danger has been greatly reduced. The bigger danger is that an autocrat will simply win the 2024 election. That is the choice that we as an electorate now faced: is do we want to preserve democracy? Warts and all, and democracy is a imperfect, slow, sloppy method of governing. But as Churchill said, it's the worst form of government except for all the others, and we are being offered an alternative form, an authoritarian form. And the question, I think, that's front and center for me is, will we reject that, the siren song temptation of authoritarianism?
1: You you anticipated my pivot, because you have clearly, my blood pressure is where it should be in the healthy zone now, because you are, I think— the Crown Prince of the Order Muppets, and everything you have described is sort of reinstating orderly bulwarks for democracy. But I'm just going to turn to the Chaos Muppets for a minute and let you walk me through it. And, you know, one of the things that we are looking at this week is whatever it is that is happening uh, in the House Speaker's race. And I'm going to confess to you that a a law professor friend sent me an email that chilled me to the bone uh, this week suggesting that if Jim Jordan won the speakership, he would simply never certify a Biden election win. Um, I guess at the time of this taping, it looks like we've got uh, what is going to be a deal to have an interim speaker through January. But I wonder if you could just help me understand (laughs) what it means to have a non-functioning House of Representatives at this moment. What? Powers the Speaker of the House is going to have in the twenty twenty four election whether the reforms you all made to the Electoral Count Reform Act somehow can 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 sort of hedge against the absolute catastrophe we've seen unfolding for the last two weeks in the House.
0: well, let's go from darkness to light. um so I'm going to agree with the law professor friend of yours, um one of my colleagues, Erica Newland brilliant attorney who served in the Office of Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice, in advance of the 2020 election, was tasked by our team to dig into what were all of the mechanisms by which Congress could subvert the election results, and what were all the mechanisms by which those in Congress who were committed to their oaths of office and upholding our constitutional order could try to prevent the body from doing that. And after doing that research, after the inauguration, Erica commented on an internal team call to our team that it occurred to her as she dug into it that if the current iteration of the Republican Party is in control of Congress on January 6, 2025, there is no way that they will certify a win if it turns out that a Democrat is legitimately elected in the 2024 election. So let that sink in. I still believe that that is the most likely outcome if the current Republican Party is in control of one or both of the Houses of Congress. Now recall that the the Congress that presides over the counting of electoral college ballots is the new Congress that is elected in 2024. So whatever Congress is elected in 2024 will be seated on January 3rd, 2025, and then will oversee the counting of electoral college ballots on January 6th, 2025. So it's not the current Congress, it's the new one. But all we have seen from the Republican party over the last six years is that they are moving further and further and further in the direction of being entirely mogified or Trumpified. Uh, And so if they prevail in the 2024 election, it seems likely that that Congress will be even more uh, Trumpified than even the one that is sitting now, which is kind of hard to believe. That's the dark part of it. The light part of it is this, Um, As much as it is terrifying and should be that 200-plus members of the Republican caucus voted to make Jim Jordan, Donald Trump's key lieutenant in the Congress, the speaker, as of the moment that we are recording this, that has been thwarted, that a handful of GOP members in the House have stood firm and blocked Jim Jordan from being speaker, again, as of the moment we're recording this, and it looks like we may end up with essentially some form of compromise in which the speaker pro tem Patrick McHenry is empowered for some short, maybe medium, maybe longer period of time to act as the speaker. And I think this is, if if that holds, that's a big if, one of the most important developments in this country over the last seven plus years. And here's why. I'm going to invoke another recent story in the news that I think is really important to pay attention to, which is the elections this past week in Poland. So in Poland this past week, a coalition that ran from the center right to the left united and pulled off a stunning upset of the illiberal, nationalist, and ever more authoritarian-leaning Law and Justice Party, which has governed Poland for the better part of the last decade or so. Why is that important? Because history teaches that the way to defeat authoritarian movements is to form a very broad, pro-democracy coalition of people who typically disagree about policy and politics. This is why, as when we started this this broadcast, I talked about our strategy at Protect Democracy is build a broad coalition of pro-democracy progressives, moderates, and conservatives. Let's go back to the interwar period in Europe. During that time, there were far-right extremist authoritarian movements rising across the continent. In some countries, Belgium and Finland in particular, the mainstream center-right parties saw those extremists for what they were, as threats to the system, and they held their noses and formed a united coalition with their traditional opponents on the left to block those extremists from power. In Italy and Germany, the mainstream center-right parties made a different calculation. They gambled that they could ride the energy of the far right extremists to power, and then once they are sideline the leaders of those far right movements. We know how tragically that gamble turned out. For most of the last six years, the American Republican Party, by and large, has chosen the German and Italian path. If they continue to do that, I think we can expect similarly tragic results. But what we may be witnessing in the House this week is the first potential signs that they might choose the Belgian, Finnish, and Polish path, or at least enough of them. Now, I'm not naive enough to be super optimistic about that just yet, because the Republican Party of late has not given me enough confidence to be super optimistic of that. But I continue to push for it, and I think we all need to continue to push for it, because I think it is the single most important thing we could do, to save democracy in the United States. So I am cautiously optimistic that if, in fact, Speaker Pro Tem McHenry does gain some degree of ongoing power to be speaker on the backs of some form of coalition, that may be one of the most positive signs we've seen in the last seven years that the United States will survive this
1: moment. We're going to take a short break. More now with Ian Basson of Protect Democracy. Ian, can we end on Donald Trump? You, I think, hinted at this when you said, holy cow, we actually may just elect an authoritarian, but I want to, I want to pull on a couple of threads. Um, there was, Talk uh, last year, especially after, as you noted, all those democracy uh, deniers really got clocked in the midterms. You know, I'm not so worried about Trump. I'm I'm more worried about a really efficient authoritarian like a Ron DeSantis, like a Ted Cruz. You know, t- Trump doesn't worry me. A- and yet, here we are, right? We're watching Trump's total dominance in the GOP primary. We're watching the absolute deflation of the rest of the GOP field. It makes that feel very naive. Donald Trump is looks to be by huge margins the front runner and I think we can even say that the more he loses in some of these court cases, the more he wins in some other universe of popularity and fundraising. So I want to think through the fact that he is a very serious, incredible threat. He is as credible a threat as a high functioning authoritarian in his stead. And, you know, we're now hearing well publicized plans for vengeance, for destruction of uh, the entirety of the uh, administrative state, weaponizing the DOJ in ways that I can't begin to contemplate. So I think this is another way that we have to walk in chew gum. We have to hold these two truths in our heads at once. The global collapse of democracy is not all about Trump. And somehow, Ian, the threat to United States democracy is all about Trump still. Well,
0: let's start with this. If Donald Trump returns to the presidency, I am confident he will not leave that office until he leaves through a higher power. Um, Term limits will not apply. And if you think, but wait a minute, a president's only allowed to serve two terms under the Constitution, you have not been paying attention. Donald Trump will not leave that office while he is alive. And if the election were held tomorrow, I think it is at least 50, if not 51% likely that Donald Trump would return to that office. So that's where we are. Donald Trump is not the cause of our democracy crisis. He is a symptom of it. If he goes away, our democracy crisis will not end. But he is a unique and acute threat because he is an extremely capable and talented demagogue. And demagogues are appealing at particular moments in time. And we happen to be living in one. When people feel anxiety about the future, when You're living through a period of rapid change that is destabilizing. And when you're living through a period in which democracy seems broken and almost not up to the task of dealing with the problems that we face, the temptation of someone who says, I alone can fix it, is greatest. It's not that people, Are openly in favor of authoritarianism. It's not even that people privately favor authoritarianism. It's that people are tempted in moments like this to say, well, if that leader can just cut through the morass, maybe some of my fears and anxieties about the future will be addressed. Because the truth is, an all powerful leader can cut through the morass. They don't need to legislate, they don't need to negotiate legislation. They don't need to overcome filibusters. They don't need to worry about courts. They can just do it. And that's the temptation that Trump offers. The thing I think it is critical for us to remember is that that has never worked out in the past. Just ask the young person in Nicaragua who's... Older relatives might have thought that Daniel Ortega could solve all their problems and he alone could fix it, who now is living with a reality in which her father was abducted for saying the wrong thing. Or the student in Turkey who was arrested for attending a banned art exhibit. Or Vlad Karamazov, the incredibly brave Russian dissident who now sits in a Russian prison, At the whim of Vladimir Putin, merely for suggesting that there should be freer and fairer elections in Russia. When you're inconvenient for an autocrat, you're at risk. And when one person is at risk, we're all at risk. And we need to resist that siren song of authoritarianism saying, well, maybe in this moment of crisis, empowering one person can solve it all because it never works out well when a country chooses that path. Maybe to end on I think it's important to end on a positive note because authoritarianism thrives and authoritarians thrive on fear and anxiety and hatred and division. And so we, as people who believe in democracy, need to not only resist authoritarianism, we need to resist the fear. And so here's one way that I've been thinking about the moment that we're living in. Maybe this isn't all negative, Maybe this isn't all fear-inducing and anxiety-inducing. Maybe this is also a moment of opportunity. I'm a big Leonard Cohen fan, um, and so I find inspiration in music. And there's a Leonard Cohen song, very appropriate for the work that I do, called Democracy. And there's a verse in the song that goes like this. It's coming to America first the cradle of the best and of the worst. It's here we got the range and the machinery for change. It's here we got the spiritual thirst. It's here the family's broken, and it's here the lonely say that the heart has got to open in a fundamental way. Democracy is coming to the USA. And I've been thinking about that verse in that song And thinking about how this country has always been on a journey of trying to achieve a form of democracy that we've never had. A form of democracy, frankly, that the world has never had. One in which a multiracial, multiethnic, multireligious, diverse population comes together and in an inclusive and equitable way self-governs as a true national community. We've never had that. But every time we've gotten a little bit closer to it, it's been through a crucible of crisis. And so maybe the moment we're in is not the end of democracy. Maybe the moment we're in is that crisis we need to go through to get to the other side to finally have the perfect democracy that we've never been able to achieve. And so I keep going back to that Leonard Cohen verse, and I keep thinking, this is not a moment for anxiety and fear. This is a moment to be excited about the fact that when we get through the storm, democracy is coming to the USA.
1: Okay, so I'm I'm having a little cry, but I'm going to not quite let you go because I'm going to say put, put meat on the bones of that song for one last second and tell every single person who is listening one thing they can do this weekend to make a difference.
0: When we meet our neighbors with suspicion of what we may not have in common, And fear and hostility, we feed authoritarianism. We cede to them the playing field. When we meet our neighbors and see differences as an opportunity for curiosity, we defeat authoritarianism and we bolster democracy. Who in your life do you have some difference of views with? Reach out to them from a place of curiosity, seeking understanding and seeking common ground de Tocqueville wrote in Democracy in America that it is those habits of the heart that are the cause of creating the democratic republic that was the United States. I think we've lost those habits of the heart in recent years in this country. I think we have isolated ourselves in our online bubbles and oftentimes even in our physical bubbles, surrounding ourselves only with people with whom we agree. And we've, we've, our muscles have atrophied when it comes to how we navigate differences to make progress together. That's something that is happening at the ground level of citizens in this country, and I think our government and our politics are downstream of that. If we as individuals can't model that behavior, there's no reason to expect our elected officials will either. But if we can do that, I actually think our elected officials will follow suit. So that's something we all have in our control, and everyone listening can do it this week.
1: Ian... The Hart Basson is co-founder and executive director of Protect Democracy. Before that, he served as associate White House counsel. His writing on democracy, authoritarianism, and American law and politics have appeared in The New York Times, The Washington Post, Slate, The LA Times, The Atlantic, and others. And at the very beginning of this month, he was announced as a recipient of the MacArthur Foundation Fellowship. Ian, thank you for being with us uh holy hell did i need it this week so thank you thank you both for the work that you do and uh for this conversation
0: i needed it too thank you dahlia
1: and that is a wrap for this episode of amicus thank you so much for listening in and thank you so very much for your letters and your questions you can keep in touch at amicus at slate.com or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of Audio at Slate. And Ben Richmond is our senior director of operations. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus next week. And until then, take good care.